And now it is my honor to introduce our spiritual leader, fresh back from a wonderful week in Asilomar, Reverend Dr. What is it? Patrick Cameron. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. It's great to be back. Great trip. Great coming home. Um, I'd like to invite you to stand with me and we'll sing our song. If you're here for the first time, we, we sing a song. Please stay seated if you prefer and, and we'll do an affirmative prayer. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very I invite you in this this moment to just sense your heartbeat feel your lungs expand and contract that activity is the remembrance and the acknowledgement of the ever-present and immediacy of this unseen force that animates our lives just as the air that we breathe and expel so freely is a metaphor and an example of how we are loved and supported and resourced. And so as I breathe with you in this moment, I'm reminded of that presence and that power and that beauty and that peace that this we live in is a spiritual universe. And so as I speak my word, the reason I articulate it out loud is that that which we say we become. And so it is our practice to come together and be supported in this conversation with that deep inner knowing, with that divine presence that lives within us and without us. That we are not only the creator, but the creation, as above, so below. And so our universe is our life. And our consciousness and our awareness as we open ourselves to an ever-expanding perception of possibility and opportunity for who we are and whose we are. I know that we continue to be guided and directed and resourced in every good way. So my knowing this day is in, in, in great gratitude and appreciation for that relationship to continue to be so buoyant and beautiful and available in my life as it is yours. So I know that each time we turn in that direction that we are lifted up, we are expanded, and we are, we are never to contract to that same awareness and consciousness for any extended period of time ever again. And so I give thanks for this day. I give thanks for life. I give thanks for this beautiful teaching that allows you and I to continue to identify, develop, and share our gifts with our family, with our community, and with the world. A world that works for everyone, which represents freedom, joy, abundance, opportunity. For this I give thanks, 
I release these words in gratitude and appreciation. I direct this infinite intelligence to release anything within me that is alive and restricting this full experience of what I've just articulated. I need not understand all of it, but wherever I am stuck, I pull it up and I look at it long enough so it no longer has power over me because it is not my truth that keeps me stuck. It is just an opportunity for discovery, for wonder, for mastery, and to clarify my purpose and your purpose. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Awesome. Thank you for standing with me in prayer. It's such a powerful thing. And sometimes, you know, I, I get through it and then rush into the ideas, and yet that experience alone is just transformative. So it's the long weekend, and uh, one of the things I told people when I was in the States that I love about Canada is they have, these people know how to have long weekends. <laughs> these people know how to travel and enjoy life. You guys should try it sometime. But I said it with great love. Pardon me? Well, there's the, those that are here. You know, what, you know, Jesus did all of his work with only two or three people at a time, so it's all good. Although, if we got down to two or three people at a time, we'd probably be meeting in a phone booth somewhere rather than, than here. But you're right. So thank you for joining us on this beautiful day. And so, you know, uh, I was in uh, the States last week. I was at our Asilomar conference. And Asilomar is A-S-I-L-M. A R A Silo. There's an O in there too, I guess. Asilomar, and what it is is it's just a name. I think it's an indigenous people's name for uh, a campground, a Y W C A campground in California, and it just so happens it's been there for a long time. It's owned by the state of California, um, and we have had our annual conference there every year for a number of years. And what we found this year was that people were not signing up, and, that, and then there's a financial liability for the organization if we don't have a certain amount of people. And so we had to decide before we went to, onto the grounds this year whether to sign our contract for next year or not. And what, it, what the facts were at the time we made the decision was we had about a $100,000 liability that we were looking at if no more people signed up. In the month that followed, once we announced we would not be renewing the contract for 2014, about another 150 people signed up. So we, 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 sort of, we think we broke even or we're close to it, which is good. Because we don't like losing money. Does anybody here like losing money? Let me know. Well, we'll talk. But, uh, you know, we want to use resources wisely. And so to make the commitment ongoing, we just thought it was what it is. And today I want to talk about change. And so if we're on, this, if we're on our journey, if we're, we're going to be doing our work, our spiritual work and living our lives, how we manage change, because we are a teaching that teaches the basics, as Dr. Holmes says in New Design for Living. Number one, we live in a spiritual universe. You either accept that or you don't. And if you accept that and understand that, then your, whole, your life takes on a whole different experience. Number two, we believe that there's this this aspect of creativity that, is, that Holmes referred to as the law. And what the law is, which sounds so stern and you know, so inflexible, what the law does is everything and anything that we dwell upon in our being, in consciousness, we create a, uh, a thought tendency. And that thought tendency eventually continues to plant the same seeds of possibility in our lives. 
And so there are patterns and there's ways of being that become the subjective nature, the subjective being that we are, we are dwelling upon these ideas in a way that is consistent and repetitive, and it outpictures in our lives. So the law, responsibility, and task is simply to say yes to whatever we give it. So really, the law doesn't dictate to us. The law just simply says yes to anything that we give it. And that's why we know that as, as consciousness changes, as we change our attitudes, we change our ways of being, our life changes. But, and, but what I've found, my journey has been one, and I'm going to share with you my talk that I did at our annual conference. It's, it's a, it's, my changes have come over time. There hasn't been one moment where everything shifted and changed, although that has happened for some people in history. You know, the story of Saul, the tax collector that was persecuting the, the uh, um, I think he was persecuting the Christians, but it could have been the Jews. And I think he was a Jewish tax collector, but he had the bolt of light, knocked him off his horse, and he changed his name and, and became a follower of, of the, the ideas that Jesus of Nazareth taught. But most of our journeys, we chip away at it. And uh, I talked about this as one of the, the speakers at Asilomar this year, which was quite an honor because there were only a few ministers invited to speak at the evening sessions. And then, of course, so we have this law that we're always in relationship with. And the other piece of it is, is that God, is, God or spirit or whatever word you, you're comfortable with is personal to all of us. So the, this idea, we live in a spiritual universe that our thoughts impress upon this infinite intelligence, a, a, a thought pattern that manifests in our lives. And also this idea of where we, and where we come into a relationship with the beloved is, is that, that loving relationship with, with spirit. And so I love the song, Kingdom of Heaven is at hand, because it, it truly is. You know, Dr. Holmes said the kingdom of heaven is upon the earth. We just don't see it until we shift our perception. Well, in fact, I began my, my talk at uh, Silomar in, the, in the Merrill Hall, and I said, uh, I'm heaven. You know, this idea of this declaration, I'm heaven, because heaven is this present moment awareness. So it's a, it's a journey, and it's gradual and it's sequential, but it requires the energy and the recommitment to continue to walk the path and do the work and, and continue to plant the seeds of possibility. And so to develop the discernment and the ability to, and the awareness that allows us to, to correct where we may be short, selling ourselves short in some, some manner or, or capacity. So I wanted to share with you some, um, a bit of the presentation that I did at Asilomar, and it was inspired by one of our members, Larry Anderson, who's writing a book. And I happened to, Laura and I happened to go visit Larry and his wife Janet one day in preparation for a, a wedding that's happening in a couple of weeks, and he was sharing this chapter in the book with us. And I thought this would be wonderful to share with the community in, uh, at our Asilomar conference. And it's really the story of Larry has, has going, in, and we have the first slide. This is a picture, and I know that uh, we may want to dim the fluorescence to see it a bit better. This is a picture or a, a, um, of the Pieta by Michelangelo, and it is in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so Larry has always been inspired and fascinated by Michelangelo, feeling he's one of the great artists of all times, and he, he really is. And so this is his, one of his masterpieces. It's a picture of, of Mary mother of, of Jesus, after he has been crucified and portrays her holding his, his lifeless body. And it's just beautiful. Larry writes in this chapter in the book how, how perfect it is and how the detail, it's almost lifelike to see it. And so he began to speculate in, in, in his own awareness and say, is this, is this his 
greatest peace. This is his greatest work. And so Michelangelo, you know, amazing story. I mean, he dropped out of school because he was called to art and creating in this way. So here's his Pieta. So Larry said, you know, I want to go to Venice or Florence and see David, because David is at the Academia in, um, in Florence. And so as he was standing outside, and the next slide shows David. There he is. And David is 17 feet tall. He's perfect in terms of proportion and, you know, this, and this, this sort of godlike quality, the, the mythic hero for the um, Israelites. And so, but it, one of his beautiful masterpieces of, of perfection that he portrayed. And so Larry said as he was standing outside with his wife Janet, they're in a long line waiting to go in and make their way down the hallway to see David. Uh, that he made, started making his way down the hallway and then all of a sudden he looked to his side and here was the unfinished slaves that Michelangelo started for the tomb of, of Pope Julian but never finished. And the first slave as you walk in is the awakening slave and I know that you cannot see it in great detail but most of it is still in the marble but it's a figure that's sort of trying to emerge from, in, in this awakened state. And so it was, it's such a wonderful metaphor for this idea of the kingdom, kingdoms of consciousness that I've... I speak about quite uh, often in that the first step in the kingdom of first kingdom of consciousness which is victim consciousness where life is being done to us and there's all kinds of things that show up and we can feel absolutely victimized by it until we realize we have a spirit we start to awaken and realize wait a minute this is so uncomfortable now I'm going to do this in a different way so here's Michelangelo so is this not alive that then is uh, alive in the consciousness then and you can barely see a form starting to emerge out of this awakened slave and then as you move down the hallway a little bit more, you see the, the, the young slave. There he is. And it's this youthful personification of consciousness awakening. It's, you know, it's the youthfulness in all of us. You know, the, the, the uh, personification of youthfulness is not chron chronological. It is, it is a state of being. It is a way of being. And I was talking to someone on the way out the door after the first service, and they said that there's a book called Longevity, and it says within the book Longevity, the people that, that have a tendency to be happy-go-lucky tend to not have as long a life. But the ones that are driven and have a purpose and have something that they want to achieve while they're here tend to live longer. I thought that was interesting. So to, have, to be clear about purpose and to be, and to be moving towards uh, an expansion of one's life and one's experience and developing one's gifts and sharing them with the world is how I would, I would verbalize that, has a tendency to keep us engaged and, and keep us in the game longer. And so here's this, but here's, so this young slave represents that youthful persona within all of us and the possibility. And, and that, so the youthful, youthfulness is not just chronological. You know, you can have lived 90 years and still have that youth, youthful perspective of newness, of opportunity, of possibility, of the joy of life, of this day, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So beautifully sung. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. Not something to achieve, not something that through a meritocracy we, we work to achieve, but in fact it is a, it's an invitation of an experience right now. The next, uh, so, and then Larry made his way down and there's the Atlas slave. This is the slave with the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's carrying it and holding it. And how many of us have felt like that? Anybody? But, you know, the burden of life and how we can take on responsibility and we can work too hard. We can drive ourselves too hard and, 
as they say, you know, rode hard and put away wet, the vernacular of a horse. You know, we can, we can work and work and work and work and work. I feel like it's just such a burden to put the burden down. And so, here, of course, and if you understand the, 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 the life of, of Michelangelo, I mean, his, his whole story was the relationship, this contentious relationship he had with the Pope and the demands to do more and more and more, to produce more and more and more. And so it was this whole struggle of the weight of it and to achieve because he was driven. His art propelled him. He said that if people worked or, or knew how hard I had to work, if people knew how hard I had to work to achieve my mastery, they would not think it so wonderful. And so I think it's a metaphor as well as our own spiritual awakening. Our own spiritual awakening is not easy because it requires our spiritual coin. It requires putting down things that are near and dear to us. It requires putting down the idea that I don't deserve. But if I put down I don't deserve, what am I going to dwell on then? It requires putting down this atlas consciousness that life is hard and it's a burden and I have to carry. Well, if I put that down, what am I going to do? Because I'm used to working hard. I'm used to the struggle. You know, that said, and so it's really the whole spiritual thing is stepping into the mystery and being willing to set things down so that something new can arise. That's what's going on in our organization with our annual conference. I believe what's happening at a deep level is a consciousness. People that are coming into our movement and are connected with our movement, we've all collectively grown beyond what Asilomar was 60 years ago when Ernest Holmes brought up a couple hundred people to this beautiful site and said, let's, let's have spiritual camp together. This will be spiritual summer camp for adults. And there's children there as well. It's beautiful. And we'll go back. We just won't go back annually. Because what we're being called to do is be more in the world. And so there's ideas around regional events. There's ideas around uh, telecasting. Tele you know, all of those, that conference should be available to everyone who wants to go on their computer and watch it. You know, the Mormons have been doing it since 1986. It's just a couple of years after that. What, 2013 now? We'll catch up. But, I mean, there's a lot of ideas around how we can simplify this and make it more accessible. If we're going to change the world, if we're going to impact 100 million lives, we probably need to change how we're doing it in ways. And, and, and so we're giving birth to that. But it's uncomfortable because a lot of people really like Asilomar. And so we told them, well, we'll come back. We probably won't come back every year. And there'll be other opportunities. But so here it is. You know, it's not about holding what we have in place, but it's really about lightening our load, which frees us. And then the last um, unfinished slave in the hallway on the way to David is the bearded slave. And the bearded slave represents the maturity. If you notice, the, and it's very difficult, I, I know, to see the contrast in this room on that big screen. But what it portrays is someone, he, he's almost completed this figure. And there are a couple of straps still holding him back. They're on his legs. And so it represents wisdom, it represents the journey, it represents the maturity, and also represents that even at that level, there's always some restriction that's going on. There's always another opportunity to look, to bring up into our awareness that which no longer serves us, to bring it into the light of consciousness and dissolve it. And I think that that is how we move into purpose and mastery. We are here for purpose, and our purpose, I believe, in an overall uh, framework is that we are the individualized expression of spirit. Each one of us uniquely hardwired in different ways. Some sing, some write, some, there are many, many gifts and talents. And, 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 but also the extension of, so it's, and those speak to career, those speak to specific activities. 
But what the opportunity is as we awaken is the opportunity to be that portal of divine expression wherever we go. Now that's the ultimate. When, when Frank was talking about his song this morning, I was reading an article just in the wee hours as I got up this morning about the idea that for someone that would use the phrase, and we hear it many times, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Well, if you're in the first kingdom of consciousness, which is victim consciousness, what, you, what, what the mindset is in that kingdom of consciousness to say that it is, here is this, this sort of Santa Claus-like figure or fairy godfather-like figure that is going to save us. But as we mature spiritually, if we understand that all of a sudden we've gone from victim consciousness to manifestation consciousness, which is the second kingdom, to co-creation, all of a sudden to talk about Jesus as Lord and Savior means that that consciousness is my opportunity and anyone else's opportunity to step into it to become personified within us individually. So it's a whole different context of what those words mean. So when you hear that, you know, when I hear that phrase, it seems very traditional for me, and sometimes I have to examine my own biases about that phrase. Because, but, it, it, but it all depends on the level of consciousness it's being articulated from. And so then I, when I hear it, is then, I, then if I don't uh, draw a snap judgment about it being um, a sense of victimization, is it, well, what is the level of consciousness it's being spoken from? Because I don't buy into the idea that I need to be saved and protected. I certainly want to be of value. I want everyone to be safe. I want everyone to be happy. But I don't think that I stand in harm's way. What I do understand is that as I do my own spiritual work, the opportunity for that anointed consciousness, which is what the Christ means, is my opportunity. And so in order to get there, as, as um, Michelangelo demonstrated, it's to chip away. It's to chip away. It's to get up every day and do a little bit more to chip away. And that's why for myself I find it valuable to have meditation practice. I find it valuable to, ha to, to set an intention for my life because as I dwell upon that, this infinite law says, yes, this is for you, yes. Anything we decide, see, we are, we are a tradition of choosing. Our tool here is choosing. We get to choose moment by moment, day by day, experience by experience, relationship by relationship, how we're going to be in the world and who we're going to interact with. I, did a, um, I have a, a list here that I, I brought with me. It was the 20 things the rich do every day. And I wanted to share with you because I think this is just the most interesting, fascinating stuff in the world. Is there anyone here that is opposed to the idea of, of having a rich life? Anybody here opposed to that? Okay, good. Then I'll, I feel free to share this. I think I, by the lack of showing of hands, I'm going to assume I have your permission. But here's some very interesting statistics compiled by Tom Corley. Now, I don't know how he measures rich. For me, abundance is being happy with what we have. This is an abundant day for me. And what I love is the idea that when I'm, when I'm chasing something, when I'm grasping at something, when I have to have something, what it reinforces in me is need and lack. So I'm very mindful about how I approach things. So now when I see something wonderful that goes by that I think I'd like to experience, rather than say, oh, look at that so-and-so showing off, I said, that's for me. Hmm, something beautiful goes by, and I said, that's for me. So when the shiny thing goes by, which I, if you've ever been here with me before, you know a shiny object will distract me for a moment. That's for me. 70% of the wealthy eat less. This is consumption of food. Eat less than 300 junk food calories per day. 
70% eat less than 300 calories per day. 97% of what we would consider those that have less, or poor people as he refers to it here, eat more than 300 junk food calories per day. 23% of the wealthy gamble with their money. 52% of poor people gamble. Interesting statistics. So one of the things we know about an abundant life is there's this, this idea of nutrition. How we feed oneself. Which is, is not the food that we consume a metaphor for how we care for ourselves. You know, when Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. was here, he said that once we learn how to love ourselves and honor ourselves, everything changes. And we can love ourselves by how we feed ourselves. 80% of the wealthy are focused on accomplishing some single goal. 80% are focused on accomplishing a single goal. So do you have a single goal that you're really passionate about? I bet most people here do. And when you achieve that or you get closer, you find another one. Because it keeps us engaged. It keeps us in the game. 12% of the, and 12% of the poor or the less uh, franchised do this. 76% of wealthy exercise aerobically four days a week. 76% exercise. Because they know that along with being, having the freedom is being able to move and to enjoy life and to be able to go where we want to go and not be restricted by health. 63% of the wealthy listen to audiobooks during commute to work. I used to get really frustrated in California because I was always on the road. I was always traveling. And so what I had was books on tapes. And I would have a book on tape. And I would, didn't matter where I was sitting, I, was, I had a clipboard and making notes for my Sunday talk because I was still doing the carpentry work. And I was educating myself. I thought, well, I'll turn, it into a, I'll turn my, my vehicle into a library. And here it is. Didn't know how wealthy I was practicing. 5% of people with less do that. 81% maintain a healthy to-do list. Things to get done. Things to get done. 63% of wealthy parents make their children read two or more nonfiction books a month. So if your dad starts making you read more books, you'll know why. 70% of wealthy parents make their children volunteer 10 hours or more a month. So here's Dr. Gans with his beautiful daughter over here. And she takes care of our nursery for us. She stepped up to do our nursery for us. She's been here every week for the whole summer. So thank you. Thank you. For making her blush. Okay. You know, when I was at Silomar, I saw Reverend Keith Cox, and Reverend Keith is one of the co-directors for our youth program, along with Reverend Michelle Lang, who came in and did some training with us. And so Keith says to me, looks me in the eye, as soon as I see him, he says, you know, I have a new hero. And I said, okay, who's that? He said, David Brown from Edmonton. There he is. Would you stand up so people can see you? So... I didn't know this, but David went with our teens down to, uh, to um, Idlewild, and then when the camp, when the fires broke out, and Keith described it in great detail to Laura and I one evening, and talked about how David kept helping him move stuff, and he was right there like his, his right-hand man, and he said, and David just told me, you know, Keith called me to thank me, but had no idea. So David, thank you for your, your help with those kids down there when all that was going on. Sixty-seven percent of the wealthy write down their goals. See, all of these things we can do. Doesn't matter what we have in our life, we can write down our goals. We can set a to, have a to-do list. Eighty-eight percent of the wealthy read thirty minutes or more each day for education or career reasons. Thirty minutes of reading, their spiritual practice. Feed ourselves, expose ourselves to some new and interesting ideas. 
I like this one, 6%, this is number 11, so I almost said 11%, 6% of the wealthy say what's on their mind. 6% of the wealthy say what's on their mind. And 69% of the poor say what's on their mind. So what I know about leadership, and as I watch people that I admire, I watch Dr. Ken Gordon all the time, I'm on the leadership council with him, he is inundated with people's opinions about what should happen, especially with the postponement or the cancellation of the next year's Asilomar. And so Dr. Ken has his opinions about it, because we've had great discussion at the board level. But he just listens, he just listens, takes it all in, realizes it's my job. People, it upsets people, people don't like change, this is, you know, and I have great memories. I mean, personally, I don't want to cancel a cylinder. Oh my gosh, that's how I ended up here with you. That's how I was, was, the members of leadership of this community went down, heard me speak in the chapel, said, you're going to be our new minister in in, uh, Calgary. Edmonton, sorry, sorry. (laughs) We'll take that out of the tape, but you're going to be our new, it could have been, I didn't know, Canada, you know, I had to get a map out and say, where the heck is Edmonton? Oh yeah, Montana. But the point being is, is that a lot of memories, and Laura and I have had some, so many wonderful uh, experiences there. So personally, I don't want to see it go. But I also realize that what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve here? And so what I get to be able to do is have the discernment to realize that my personal goals may not line up with what we're called to do in a bigger way. And so that excites me, because that's a bigger yes. So anyway, but 6% say what's on their mind, which means that when we have the discernment to realize that when people come at us and they've got a lot of opinions and they've got a lot of concerns or they've got a lot of fears or whatever it may, or they're complimenting us, to realize, hmm, and to just listen. Well, thanks for sharing. Tell me more. But, but on that lower economic scale, 69% say what's on their mind. So I just think that's a fascinating statistic to look at and how we're operating in the world doesn't mean we don't love people, but it's having, I think, the wisdom and the mindset to understand that a lot of projection goes on in, in relationship. And typically what I'm saying to someone else is my opinions that I see or my places within me that, that are seeking a, a greater experience of life that someone is modeling for me. And then I can realize, and then I can take ownership of it, and then I can ask myself, do I really need to say this? Because I don't think it has anything to do with them other, other than I see myself in that person especially when I'm critical of someone, when I fall into uh, judgment rather than discernment. 44% of the wealthy wake up three hours before work starts. 44% get up three hours, or they don't get up, they wake up. See, I wake up three hours before work starts too, but I typically don't get out of bed for another uh, two hours. I'm I'm just kidding. But 44% get up and so they have things they prepare for their day so they they can have a more interesting experience perhaps. 74% 74% of wealthy teach good daily, teach that good daily success habits to their children. 1% of the poor do that. 74% teach good daily success habits to their children. 84% believe good habits create opportunity for luck. So if you want to create more luck in your life, good habits. I'm told that people that make their bed have a more productive day than those that don't. Just making your bed. I mean, isn't it interesting? We don't, have to, we don't have to tithe anymore. We don't have to go to classes. Here's 20 things that we can do that help shift our consciousness from the outside in. I like that. It's like, oh, I can do these things. Make a list? Yeah. Eat less junk food? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 74% of the wealthy believe bad habits create detrimental luck. Now, 86% of wealthy believe in lifelong educational self-improvement. 5% of the poor. 
86, see they understand. So what, what are we talking about here? I made a, little, made a little list, probably didn't bring it with me now. But we're talking about um, self-care through nutrition, having a list which helps set our invitation, which we would call an intention, but having a list that sets an intention, and then we continue to nurture it, which is the invitation. It's talking about the habits and practices that allow people to live a more valuable life. And it also ties in beautifully with this idea that when we have a purpose, when we have a purpose about our lives, we, there's, sort of a, um, there's sort of a draft, there's sort of a, a momentum that we can continue to generate. I was telling the fellow that was sharing with me the story from longevity that says that people that, are, are, that have a purpose live longer. And I said to him, you know, I find it interesting because I find that as I go along and I do this work and I do this work and I continue to do my reading and I continue to have my life experiences and bring it back in and reflect and do my own healing work around it, that I think, golly, I'm, I'm figuring this out a little bit better. Why would I want to quit doing this? And so, uh, but I, I think that, that, that that's just the nature of the infinite wanting to express. And, and, and there's, there's a joy around that. It's not, it's not a driven in sense of got to get it done, got to do it. But it's this, this wonder and curiosity about what's going to happen next, what wants to happen here. And to be in that conversation, it's quite powerful and beautiful. The last slide that, that uh, would go up was the slide of David. And, and you saw David and you know what David looks like. But David is 70, 17 feet tall and he represents perfection. And I think that what we do when we decide that we're looking for perfection is that we sell ourselves short because it creates, I think, an unrealistic expectation. Because the perfection is a given. See, the perfection that Holmes talks about is this, this amazing ability for you and I to decide this is my course, this, these are the qualities I want to embody, this is the way I want to live my life. And to go about the business of developing the consciousness that expresses that. And the, the perfection is that whatever I, the sum total, the tipping point in my consciousness that allows me to have that experience, I get to work with this law that is always precise. So the perfection is this infinite law that lives and supports each and every one of us unconditionally. It doesn't matter what we believe, but that we believe it. Now it does in terms of quality and morality and all that. I'm not saying that's not important, but that's, that's at the level of, of the effect. I'm talking at the level of causation that as we shift consciousness, we are able to, to heal, we're able to express, we're able to create, and we're able to be more potently alive on the planet. But that's a given. That's true for all of us. No one has denied that opportunity. So perfection is a given. But I think what is more beneficial, my experience has been, is not to seek the perfection. And when I first got into this teaching, I put a lot of pressure on myself because I felt like I had to be perfect because I didn't understand it. I was thinking about it at the level of my personality, at the egoic level of the level of, of effect in my life. But I realized that that law works perfectly all the time. And then the opportunity to perfect my relationship with the divine. Because God is, not only is the law impersonal, but God is personal to all of us. Because God is the feminine and the masculine. It's a principle. And it's everywhere present. And so the opportunity to realize that the way that I can have a deeper and more wonderful experience with that presence, that personal relationship with spirit, is through peace. 
So then what has happened is, in my experience is not to seek the perfection, but to welcome the peace. Because when I'm at peace, when, I, I, when I'm in that state of, and peace for me means, means all is well, that life is eternal. And despite how uncomfortable I am in this moment, despite the chaos that has come into my life, because what we know and what's alive on the planet right now is the idea that with every new thing that has given birth, there's chaos. Our organization is going through chaos right now. We're putting down something that's been part of our tradition for years and years and years. That doesn't mean either or. It will be both and. We'll probably go back there, but maybe every three years, maybe every four years. Make it a big event. Sell it out. Create a demand. In the meantime, do regional events. So people like this community and people from the Calgary Center, we could meet somewhere and we could go to Banff or we could go to Jasper and we could have, you know, 150 people come together and have a spiritual experience together and be fed and feed one another. I think that's what we're being called to do. It's it's just because the universe supports a vacuum. So, you know, this, this, this amazing teaching, this amazing, beautiful tradition that, that supports us and loves us and resources us, it is happening. The, the, the consciousness on the planet is shifting. I think an example of it is what I just articulated about our movement. We've grown out of this idea that you need to come somewhere and be fed by a minister or someone that is a leader or a teacher, in a sense, because the wisdom and the clarity, there's enough. We come together just for the reminder. I don't think I share anything with you that you don't already know. Sometimes I'll put a list together that I think is insightful, and sometimes I can share something. But the collective here, we're all part of this conversation. And it's just a beautiful, wonderful thing to watch unfold. So it is the change. It's the nature of change. It's inevitable. And how we manage it and how we participate in it is our opportunity to choose. But to not seek, as I say, to, to not make the, the, the determining factor of success be perfection, but peace in every moment. So we're available to that conversation where spirit is everywhere present. And it's the de- development of that discernment and that awareness that allows us then to choose new in this moment, which will at times be uncomfortable. But it's a beautiful thing. When I got on the airplane to go down to California about nine or ten days ago, there was a woman that had come that Sunday with her family, and I recognized her face. Many times I don't see you for a long time, and you come in, and it's like, hey, yeah, how you doing? And uh, she was on the same airplane, and so we were visiting at the airport, and I got to know her and her family very well, because we were visiting, waiting, I've got to be there two hours early. And her name was Mona, and Mona said, you have no idea the difference your community has made in our lives, for my, myself, my husband, and my son. We came to your center five years ago, just before we moved to California, and we listened to your talk, and we enrolled in your philosophy and started to gather more information, and we now attend a center in Oakland. But she said our favorite thing when we came back to Edmond for this trip back to see family was to come to the center and see you and experience the energy there. And I thought, wow, what a sweet thing. You know, I mean, I didn't, I have no clue, no clue. But isn't it true for all of us? When we go out in the world and we take this, we take this perception with us, we take this mindset and, and, and cultivation of our own consciousness, wherever we go, we, just, we are affecting lives we can't even imagine in our everyday commerce, in our everyday interactions. And I think sometimes for myself, I, I don't give enough value to that. You know, someone can come one time and their whole life can shift she said to me, you know, you started us on a path of spirituality that we didn't even know was possible until we came to the center. 
And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It happens everywhere. And she was drawn here by right of consciousness because she was ready to have that be cracked open in her. But, but what a wonderful thing to, to hear and to be reminded of. Because sometimes we get so busy doing and it's wonderful to hear people's stories of transformation. And it is, is the, these, the reason I wanted to share these sculptures with you is that, that Larry said that he just started sobbing as he was walking down the hallway and didn't know what was going on. And he looked to his left and his right and saw these unfinished slaves. And he realized, here's the metaphor for my life. It's not the perfection of David. It's the chipping away of consciousness. Day by day, breath by breath, thought by thought, that's our activity. And once we accept that and know that, it's like, wow, this is so cool. This is awesome. I get, today I get to chip away a little bit more of the, of the marble that I no longer need to hold myself back with. Like, to be able to look at the limiting ideas I've carried with me that my parents or my grandparents or my teachers or brothers or sisters gave to me because they were giving me every, they give you everything they have. And it's important to have that so that we have something to work through. Otherwise, there's no mastery. You know, as Michelangelo said, if people knew how hard I had to work to develop my mastery, it would not seem so wonderful. But what a wonderful teacher, what a wonderful example of what we teach, the chipping away of consciousness. So I'm just so over, I'm just filled with gratitude and joy to be part of this with you, to be part of a community that says, you know what, let's celebrate where we are, let's accept perfection as a given, Let's embody peace and let's listen deeply in our hearts and our minds, individually and collectively, and see what, what more wonderful thing this greater expression wants to happen here. That's the tribe we belong to, and it's a beautiful tribe. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank for your love and support, and so it is. <laughs>